these alternatives that have been kept alive um, in large part by indigenous movements around the world, saving seeds, saving knowledge, protecting ways of living with the earth that were much less vulnerable to being knocked out in a moment, now don't look like a, a silly old fashioned way of living, but actually a much more intelligent way of surviving a future that is going to be marked by many more staccato shocks before the last one was in any way resolved. That's Naomi Klein, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Naomi Klein and Arundhati Roy on Surviving the Future. What will tomorrow bring in the age of COVID-19? There is so much uncertainty. Arundhati Roy sees an opportunity. She writes, Whatever it is, coronavirus has made the mighty kneel and brought the world to a halt. And in the midst of this terrible despair, it offers us a chance to rethink the doomsday machine we have built for ourselves. Nothing could be worse than a return to normality. Historically, pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine their world anew. This one is no different. It is a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. We can choose to walk through it, dragging the carcasses of our prejudice and hatred, our avarice, our data banks and dead ideas, our dead rivers and smoky skies behind us. Or we can walk through lightly with little luggage ready to imagine another world, and ready to fight for it. Our guests today on Alternative Radio are two incomparable voices, Naomi Klein and Arundhati Roy. Naomi Klein, award-winning journalist and columnist, is the Gloria Steinem Endowed Chair in Media, Culture, and Feminist Studies at Rutgers University. She's the author of many books, including The Shock Doctrine, This Changes Everything, and On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal. She's co-founder of the climate justice organization, The Leap. Arundhati Roy is a world-renowned writer and global justice activist. The New York Times calls her India's most impassioned critic of globalization and American influence. She's the author of the novels, The God of Small Things, for which she received the Booker Prize, and the Ministry of Utmost Happiness. A collection of her essays, My Seditious Heart, is published by Haymarket. Arundhati Roy spoke from New Delhi and Naomi Klein from New Jersey in a conversation moderated by Asad Rehman, director of the London-based organization War on Want. The event was recorded on May 19, 2020. And now, Naomi Klein. When I, when I wrote This Changes Everything, I began with a quote from Angelica Navarro, Bolivia's then one of Bolivia's climate negotiators, calling for a Marshall Plan for planet Earth, a redistribution of resources on a scale never seen before, recognizing the debt that was owed from the North to the South, and really seizing on the climate crisis and the fact that we can quantify who warmed this planet, because we know where the carbon came from over several hundred years, as an invitation to build a more just world or to set the world right side up, as the late 
great author Eduardo Galeano might have told us in a moment like this. And yet, despite these roots and groundwork laid by organizations like Acción Arqueológica, who were going to be participating in the Global Green New Deal gathering, in some ways, the Global South had dropped off the, the radar of many of the people talking about a Green New Deal in the North. And so the idea around this gathering, this process, was to begin to have a more participatory, a more democratic uh, conversation. And I think in trying to begin to answer this challenge, what is the system that needs changing? It goes by, we, we all know the names, right? We are talking about the violence of a capitalist system. We are talking about an extractivist logic that treats both the earth itself individual places and entire groups of people as disposable. So it's a logic of endless extraction and disposal that really cherishes nothing and no one. And at The Leap, we talk about moving from that logic to a logic of care and repair, caring for the earth and, and one another. But one of the things that I think is really striking about the moment that we're in right now with this pandemic is the roar of workers who are on the front lines, who are talking about being simultaneously essential and disposable, or simultaneously essential and sacrificial. And so if we think about the, that arc of history and the fissures and injustices that created this crisis and the climate crisis itself, it was always built on the idea of essential and the simultaneity of the essential and the sacrificial. If we think about the earliest inputs to the colonial project, stolen land and stolen bodies of African slaves, of indigenous land, the essential was always treated as sacrificial. Its essentialness was always denied. So, I think that cuts very deep into what it is that needs changing, the sickness of the system, and maybe hints at the world that we need to build that is founded in treating no one as if they are sacrificable and nowhere. It begins with cherishing and builds from there. And then I would just hand it over to the much more eloquent and brilliant Arundhati Roy. <laughs> who I'm so happy to be, to be looking at right now. Hello, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Naomi, it's lovely to see you. I'll talk about things that I don't have answers for, but things that I'm thinking about and worrying about. The coronavirus, obviously it's not the first pandemic the world has ever known, but perhaps the first pandemic in this WhatsAppized digital age where there's no interface between media anchors and every kind of virologist and epidemiologist and mathematical model maker. And so what is happening in, in New York and the way it's being dealt with in New York is within seconds being dealt with in India in the same way when the problems, the medical problems, the health issues, the strategic ways of dealing with that ought to be totally different. So there's a, there's a kind of breakdown of the whole world that we've seen now. I mean, there is the machine of capitalism has come to a halt, and that is creating a kind of panic where there are people like us talking about one kind of way of looking at how to use this moment 
to bring people to their senses. And there's another situation in which the chessmen are being moved around so fast while we are all locked down. And I just was reading about how they're about to sign over a big elephant sanctuary with a lot of rare plants and rare birds in, in the state of Assam to over to coal mining. Coal mining has just been privatized. Everything is being privatized now to deal with this crisis. So exactly the opposite of what we want to happen is happening very fast. But when we talk about cherishing and when we talk about passion and when we talk about the people who have been affected for so many years here in India, there have been such great, ferocious, beautiful, militant movements raising all these issues with a different language, obviously, because those movements have actually come from the ground. And they have said all the things that we are saying, which essentially, to put it in, in a sentence, was asking the world to redefine the meaning of progress, to redefine the meaning of civilization, to redefine the meaning of happiness. Do you really need to treat the earth like a resource in order to call yourself civilized? The people that were fighting had a different idea. But at the same time, what really worries me is now that, let's say in the state of Assam, where the elephant sanctuary is going to be handed over to coal mining, it's a state where people have, like since the 70s, fought. There's been such a huge movement there against what people think of as foreigners, people who have come in from Bangladesh, whatever. It's a, it's a very vexed issue over there. It has been for a long time. And you can't just demonize what's going on. But that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is the passions that that kind of nationalistic identity arouses in people, that same passion doesn't translate onto the defense of the land. So how do we make that so? How do we, as people who are thinking about how to mount this resistance? Because ultimately, we, I think, are at a stage where those who agree with us agree with us. And that includes a huge amount of young people. We're not going to be able to persuade the people in um, the corporate CEOs or the fossil fuel industry. We're not going to be able to persuade them. We have to force them. So what are those pressure points? My perspective and my understanding, of course, is pretty much rooted in this part of the world. And I keep thinking in the 60s, there were huge movements, ideological and revolutionary movements, demanding the redistribution of land, the redistribution of wealth, the call for revolution. And from the 60s to now, it became first a call for revolution, then it became just the anti-dam movements and the anti-displacement movement started. Just leave whatever little land people have, indigenous people or people who live on the riverbank, don't displace them. Let's just leave us with what little we have. And even that has been pushed back. So we are left with a language of justice, which has been reduced to talk of human rights. We are left with the language in which they adjudicate. The real crisis we face is how do we mobilize and how do we become 
militant about what we want and what we believe in, because truly the, the next generation is going to be devastated. If people think coronavirus is a problem, it's a stuffed toy compared to clim the climate crisis that's coming. Just a couple of things I would love to, to build on. One is that we need to be honest that we are in a moment where liberalism has failed us. The sort of liberal human rights discourse here, the professionalized NGO architecture, the siloing of crises into their own little boxes, human rights over here, migration over there, environment over here, racism over here, feminism over here. That has failed us. The world is defying that in real time as all of these crises intersect and what was bad before the crisis of the coronavirus becomes absolutely unbearable, unlivable in the midst of it on so many fronts that I'm not going to delineate here. But, you know, I think that that's the whole idea of, of a Green New Deal framing and in particular one that is trying to break down nationalist discourses is we can't think like that anymore. And there's a whole history that trained generations to think like that because I think of the real threat of the people's movements that you're talking about, Arundhati, that, do, that were demanding those the revolution, making revolutionary demands, making core demands about redistribution of land and, and resources. And that created something a lot safer and created a context where progressives, liberals, whatever you want to call them, who tend to live in cities. And, you know, I always quote Arundhati saying, you know, the environmental movement for too long has asked the question, how do we change without changing, which is a challenging, more challenging question the longer you sit with it. And that is a world that has a bad track record of standing with the movements that are most directly impacted by these violent logics of extraction, whether it be earth or people or both at the same time, and maligning those movements and critiquing them and just the, for, for their lack of perfection in key moments. And, you know, this is something that I've always really appreciated about Arundhati's writing and politics of, of standing with those movements that have been vilified by liberals in these moments, where you have political projects that are being powered by more working class parts of society and of the left and a sort of a liberal elite saying no way you know and those doors shut and now you know we're in a moment where we we're weaker than we should be because these openings were not seized but what, one of the things that really strikes me when i you know when i think about why i decided to throw in for bernie and i, I think this is relevant because bernie's campaign really had embraced the global green new deal framing and you know wasn't perfect but it was connecting it with militarism was talking about moving trillions from the military budget to a global green new deal that would have massive redistribution of wealth from north to south 200 billion dollars as part of that redistribution and if you look at who the biggest donors small donors to the sanders campaign were they were amazon workers nurses teachers and so many of the people whose work is now being recognized as essential. So they were already being disrespected. And so I find myself thinking, you know, so if there's this group of people who are being labeled essential and are being treated as sacrificial, then there's this other group of people who are at home, like us, who have the luxury of isolation. So what are we if we're not essential, right? <laughs> like, are we superfluous? Are we being, like, kept like pets? For who? Like, what, what is our role? 
I just want to, I mean, just because of the overwhelming horror that is happening here right now, I, I wanted to say, when you say, who are we, that while I was talking about one of the ways in which what we are talking now of as climate change and about the climate crisis, one of the ways many years ago, 20 years ago, when people were fighting on the ground, of course they were not using these words, but they were fighting big dams, they were fighting mining, they were fighting deforestation. And where did the power of those fights come from? They came from the idea that people were being displaced in their hundreds of thousands, sometimes in their millions, by these big projects, which were then directly, you could see people being pushed off their lands and forced into, into big cities. So the non-Hindu fascist government, the pro-neoliberal Congress government, had a vision where they wanted India to be urbanized. They wanted like 70% of the, you know, it was, it used to be 80% rural, 20% urban. And, uh, and there was this a push of people to be now arriving as pools of cheap labor in, in cities, hidden in these tenements and uh, working as more or less slave labor in, you know, the garment industry and the construction. And now, when Modi announced the, the lockdown, 1.38 billion of us were locked down with four hours notice. All the world has seen the, the pictures of the exodus of millions of stranded workers. Now those same people who were pushed out of their villages by these projects, which are exactly what we are opposing now, moved into the cities. And now are, there's this massive reverse migration because they do not exist in the imagination of this country anymore. The, the poor were simply erased. They were erased in literature. They were erased in cinema. They were erased in politics, except when you start looking at voter booth counts and all that. And, and suddenly they reappeared now. And what we are witnessing every day here is, is millions of people walking hundreds of kilometers, hungry, without water, without food, without money. And the answer to this is more privatization, more mining, more deforestation. Why? Because this is how you're going to power back the economy. We roughly know the contours of the crisis. We don't know the horror. We don't know the texture of it. We don't know the depth of it. But the chaos is, is, is on the level, honestly, of some kind of crime against humanity. I mean, sometimes I think you really need the COVID trials to tell us what are these structural things that are going on while this, uh, well, it's, I keep using the word biblical, but the Bible has not seen such numbers. Even the people who are closed in their homes, I don't think, and sleep at night thinking, what have we done? Who are we? Mm -hmm. And combine that with the Hindu fascist, Islamophobia, the detention centers being built, the Muslim, anti-Muslim citizenship law. So, and, and you have, while these millions of people have no transport, no, no way to get home hundreds of miles away, you have the Indians who were stranded abroad being flown back in sanitized planes, almost as though preparations are being made to separate the walking classes from the flying classes forever like a class apartheid. We had a caste apartheid 
we have a religious apartheid and now a class apartheid where you have this touchless future and what's going to happen to the bulk of the workers of the world. Some of them will continue to work, of course, but the interface between the flying classes will actually be hermetically sealed. I used to say that you had the India's middle and upper classes have fought the most successful secessionist struggle in the world where they seceded into outer space and they look down and say, what's our coal doing in your fields and what's our water doing in your rivers and what's our timber doing in your forests? You know, so you can't really think of countries anymore. You think of elites and then another world and COVID is making it really a hermetically sealed I, I wanted to just talk about if we will talk us through this portal, if we went through a portal and we could actually genuinely lift off the shackles of our imagination and, and, and imagine a diff very different world. I mean, what could that look like? The main thing is really to change our imagination. When I come to Europe and, and the US, uh, when I travel there, People keep asking me, you know, why do you live in India? This is so much horror. But there's also a wilderness of the imagination here. There's also places where the possibility of a different way of living and a different way of thinking and a different way of understanding what civilization could be still exists really, I mean, in reality. But I would say that one of the, one of the most profound moments when I thought as a writer, how do I answer this question? It's something that I wrote in one of the essays a while ago. I was traveling in uh, uh, the state of Orissa where there's a lot of bauxite and there's a lot of bauxite mining. So the bauxite mountains are these porous rock mountains, you know, flat mountains, which for the people around, they function as water tanks. Bauxite holds the water and then it waters the plains below and then you have these uh, mining companies for whom the bauxite in the mountain means nothing. It only is only valuable when you take it out of the mountain. Whereas for the people there, it's only valuable when it's in the mountain, doing what it's meant to do in nature. So I thought, when will we be able to have an imagination that allows you to leave the bauxite in the mountain? Because that is the beginning of a, a, a domino effect. Once you understand that you just can't extract everything, that things are finite, then your genius, there is no doubt that the human race is a genius race, but your genius moves towards thinking differently, not thinking of the bauxite out of the mountain, but the bauxite in the mountain. Then you move towards uh, respecting the land. What is it that grows on this land? that nourishes the people here, not what cash crop can I grow and send to Canada. Can you look at the food on your plate and not have frequent flyer miles on it? That's how people like me did grow up. When I grew up in Kerala, everything on my plate was really literally from within a one kilometer radius, whether it was the fish or the rice or the bamboo pole you caught, it was and it was fine. No one was suffering. Going through the portal would be to say that change doesn't mean you're going to necessarily suffer. It could be so much more beautiful, you know, to be in a place where you respect 
not you're not you don't have a psychotic relationship with the earth that you want to despoil it and destroy it and to your fellow human beings too it's a great relief to respect the earth and to have a more equal relationship with people and for this i just want to say that we do know that our enemies are on the right and they are the ceos and so on i mean speaking from my experience in india the left has by the left i mean in india the left isn't the american left it's a regular real communist left left or it considers itself to be but it has also failed it has also failed to understand what women want it has failed to understand caste it has failed to understand the environment in so many ways so you do need a new and more wholesome ideological approach to carry i mean why does why did bernie eventually not get nominated you know it wasn't only because of the neoliberal democrats he also didn't carry i think a lot of people a lot of african americans who feel left out of the conversation in some ways we have to include everybody in this understanding of what justice looks like only then the siloization those walls will break down only when you can't just get away by saying caste is class comrade is more than that we have a lot of work to understand how to build solidarities on our side also you know because the other side is never going to be with us i mean we don't have to waste too much time trying to convince them it's about rallying those who understand and agree but have to feel the passion for each other i have to tell you a lovely little poem about the commons the law locks up the hapless felon that steals the goose from off the common but lets the greater felon loose who steals the common from the goose <laughs> You're listening to Arundhati Roy and Naomi Klein on Surviving the Future. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can order CDs of this program by calling 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. .org If you'd like a free copy of a printed transcript or PDF or MP3 of this program just give us a call 1-800-444-1977 I think it is that question what is the economy for and I think that we are in a malleable moment right where you know whenever we have these moments and we seem to have them more frequently <laughs> where capitalism is just wildly breaking its own rules in broad daylight right we saw it after the 2008 financial crisis and we are now seeing it again that creates an opening but the opening is brief if we have the confidence and you know coming to that you know, Milton Friedman quote that only a crisis real or perceived produces real change it's interesting i think that friedman's fascination and actually fear of moments of crisis was built on an understanding that previous profound economic crises in particular the market crash of 1929 had produced everything that he hated about um redistribution of wealth in in his own country right it produced the new deal and if we understand neoliberalism really as a class war 
to dismantle the gains of working people in the midst of the Great Depression in the aftermath of the Second World War, it, it explains the shock doctrine. The shock doctrine is a way of preventing moments of crisis from being seized by regular people, by working people, to demand real fixes to what those crises reveal, to the unveilings. And you know, I often think in this moment of friends that I met in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria, where who talk about Hurricane Maria as an unveiling, uh, unveiling all of these pre-existing crises and vulnerabilities, including, you know, Arundhati was talking about uh, an imagination that allowed for thinking that we could be happy with food that we had grown ourselves, grown locally. These shocks to our system produce the realization of just how vulnerable we are because of the logics of capitalist globalization, which creates these incredibly long supply chains that are highly centralized. For Puerto Rico, all of their food was coming, you know, almost all, around 90, more than 90% of, of the food into an island or an archipelago of islands that were incredibly fertile, was being imported through a single port, much of it coming from a single port in Florida. And both those ports were hit by two different hurricanes. So, you know, we talk about food and food security, and that can seem like jargon and abstraction until the moment that your port where all your food is coming through gets knocked out. Or the electricity that is coming from centralized sources gets knocked, knocked out. And so these alternatives that have been kept alive um, in large part by indigenous movements around the world, saving seeds, saving knowledge, protecting ways of living with the earth that were much less vulnerable to being knocked out in a moment, now don't look like a, a silly old fashioned way of living, but actually a much more, much, much more intelligent way of surviving a future that is going to be marked by many more shocks, right? So when we talk about the portal, we're not talking about a sunny utopia, right? Like we're talking about how we survive a future that is going to have many more of this staccato shocks before the last one was in any way resolved. And we're seeing it right now. We're entering into hurricane season. We will still be in a pandemic when that, those hurricanes um, are, start pummeling island nations, start pummeling coastal cities. So how are we going to live together, right? What is going to allow us to hold on to our humanity, to not lock down, to not fear strangers? And I think we need to be building in, you know, I sometimes talk about shock absorbers, but it's really about resisting the logic of that brutal efficiency that doesn't leave any slack in the system. Every time there's any kind of hit, you know, there's no beds in the hospital, there's no food, there's no food reserves, there's no water, because the, the logic of capitalist efficiency makes sure that there's no slack in the system. So we need a much more bountiful logic, because that's actually what's going to allow us to survive. And we need that when it comes to food, we need redundancies, right? Nature has all of these brilliant redundancies built in, because we know that there are shocks. But capitalism has been taking out all the redundancies, so that we are so vulnerable every time we have one of these shocks. I just want to, you know, one of the reasons why I find the the metaphor of the portal so important, right, is that it is a reminder that we are going somewhere different. That by no means necessarily means it's better. And I think we all agree mm -hmm. that it's more likely to be worse. But what we aren't doing is going back to where we were before. Like we are in a in a period of seismic shift. And I think one of the things that is radi potentially radicalizing in a good way about this moment, you know, Arundhati was talking about 
the rich declaring independence really from the rest of the world and living a kind of a hermetically sealed luxury existence. I mean, I don't think it can ever be hermetically sealed because there will always be hands that pack the boxes, that do the, the pick the food, that is not going to be automated. But what capitalism no. will be better at doing is hiding the hands. Mm. We're actually in a moment where the two worlds are butting up against each other more closely and with more porousness. We are seeing each other, like because of this unveiling to mix metaphors, we are seeing and thinking about the hands that make our lives possible. We who are part of the lockdown class, the isolate, you know, whatever but, you want to call it. And so, you know, just to finish this thought, right, how do we maintain that? Because what Silicon Valley is in the midst of doing is figuring out very, very quickly how to hide the hands, right? What they're, they're repackaging so-called frictionless technologies or seamless technologies as now touchless technologies. So you're going to get your Amazon packages by drone and or driverless vehicle. And they're going to, you know, they're talking about how they're eliminating touch points in all of this. And so at, there's a massive rebranding campaign. I'm calling it the Screen New Deal. But it's all an illusion because all it is about is hiding the hands and the touch that we will never be freed from. And so... In this moment where we're recognizing the, the pandemic as a crisis, you know, down the road, it could just be that we're just like, find a way to live with 3,000 people a day dying in the United States from the pandemic, and that just gets normalized. Now we're calling that a crisis. This is a moment what, that we have to build upon. This is a moment where like the front page of the New York Times is, you know, featuring a corpse with a gloved hand, you know, performing last rites. And then there's a new section of the New York Times on Sundays called At Home, How We Live Now. And it's all about quarantine lifestyle, sourdough recipes, camping with your kids in the backyard, how to have a stay staycation, wonderful things you can get ordered to your home, what to watch on streaming video, right? So it's, it's already turning the pandemic into a luxury lifestyle. Yeah. Our political task now is to not let the hands disappear and to keep open the spaces where we see through these portals before all of it gets disappeared. In India, somehow the, the, the virus, at least according to official figures, has behaved very differently to how it has behaved in Europe and the US. So uh, though it arrived here the same time as it arrived in the US, there are 3,000 deaths officially recorded for corona. But in that same time, from January 30th to now, if you extrapolate um, medical data, you have 150,000 people have died of that other respiratory infectious disease called tuberculosis. But it has been made the disease of the poor. And corona will be too. It will become, we were all told we are battling it. It's a war. It's a war. But now the, the, the language is you have to learn to live with it. But in other words, the poor have to learn to live with it. And the poor will labor, they will not be protected, and the turnover will be acceptable. The turnover of bodies or whatever you're talking about. Here in India, a lockdown could never be a lockdown. I mean, yesterday, there are thousands, I mean, tens of thousands of people just in stations and bus stops just trying to get home. They say, we'll, we'll go home and die. We don't want to die here in the city. But they don't want to die. Who wants to die? But they have nowhere to go. They have no space, as I said, in anybody's imagination. So touchless 
what I said was that hands won't go away, but there will be class apartheid. You create a, a, a world which is separate. It's the same thing. The middle and upper classes secede into outer space and the others labor for them. Before the COVID crisis hit, India was, the unemployment was at a 45-year high. And now 135 million jobs have been lost. You know, so what is the, what are the contours of this crisis and how are they going to be dealt with? Maybe by just making people hate Muslims more and lynch Muslims more and I don't know. How is it going to, how yeah. is it going to play out? I don't know. The question is, is how do you, how do we tackle that populism whilst at the same time talking about internationalism? And is, is it possible to do both? It's really difficult. Increasingly in, in India, like I see that ultimately now if you have a coal mine or if you're a, anywhere mining, not so much the battle for da against dams, but people who have actually managed to protect the land and just said you can't come, you know, we're going to fight you if you come in, have actually managed to succeed more than people who are, you know, being Gandhian or being polite or going to court because every institution has turned against us even now in this crisis. And so right now you're seeing a situation in India where it's really hard to read because just before the COVID crisis, the whole country was in a beautiful moment of resistance against the anti-Muslim citizenship laws. And you had the most, all the young people, students, poetry, you know, it was just beautiful. And now when we are locked in, they're arresting the students under anti-terrorism laws, holding them without bail. And the whole anti-Muslim language using Corona to stigmatize Muslims, the TV channels call it Corona Jihad. How do people who are just fighting for their lives, fighting to survive, some of them are not fighting because of a climate crisis. You know, they are fighting because of a hatred crisis or a hunger crisis. The desperation is so extreme. The violence is so extreme. The oppression is so extreme. The threat of being picked up and put into jails where corona is spreading is happening to people now. So it's so important to keep doing what Naomi, what you do, which is to forefront the connections between all of this, because that's what you can do best as a writer. But at the same time, sometimes you just feel like you're surrounded by, by fire. And even people who, who say anything, the, the threat is so imminent and so terrifying in some ways. Mm -hmm. We are in this strange moment where the forces of the far right, the forces of, of, of fascism, are more internationalist than the left. We have to remember that Trump and Modi and Netanyahu and Viktor Orban and Scott Morrison, I mean, they're all trading tricks and technologies. And the conversations that I've had with you in recent years, I'm talking about this, have been very harrowing for me because I do believe we see a migration of tactics where Israel has been using Palestinians as a laboratory for a lot of these surveillance technologies that then get sold and repackaged. I think China has been a laboratory for controls of information and ways of having a high-tech state while still having a controlled population. 
what happened, I think, in India after Modi's re-election and the sort of gloves-off ferociousness and the use of technology as a disciplining tool, unplugging and plugging people in, yeah. is, it's very important that we have these exchanges. And we need to do a better job, I think, of having more of them because we're all offering each other previews and uh, of, of what's to come. We need to learn about resistance strategies that have worked, that have failed. We can't give up on internationalism, and I don't think anybody yeah, is, 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 um, is suggesting that. We need more, more of it. The world has learned about lockdowns now, but mm -hmm. Kashmir has been locked down since August 5th. I mean, for a great part, without internet, without phones, with soldiers on the street and razor wire, you can imagine six million people being devastated in that way. And of course, much of how it was done was learned from Israel and Gaza. Yeah, so they're learning from each other. You're absolutely right. I haven't done a good job talking about, you know, the sort of radical future that we need. We have gone into those fires that Arundhati is describing, and it is a really frightening moment, and we are committed to not spreading false hope. We have to be very honest about the challenges that, that, that we face and the stakes of this moment. But I do think that the kind of courage that we are seeing from the people who are really in the fire, who are being actively sacrificed in this moment, sent to treat people without masks, without basic protective equipment, because we don't respect women's care work, whether they're home care workers, whether they're working in nursing homes, you know, whether they're working in hospitals. You know, in so many ways, I think this virus has acted like a kind of a heat-seeking missile that finds wherever people are being treated as refuse, as disposable, with lack of respect, wherever living beings are being treated that way, that's where we're seeing the outbreaks, right? In the slaughterhouses, in the, you know, in the old age homes where our elders are being treated with such little respect, where the people who care for them are treated with such little respect, right? And so I think the pain and the complexity of this moment is that on the one hand, we see the system that just unveiled and the lack of care and the extreme racism and sexism in who is treated as disposable. But we are also seeing these outpourings of love and appreciation for the laborers who are keeping us alive and caring for us and caring for our loved ones when we can't be with them. We need to build on that. And we need in very concrete terms to stand with the people who are taking extreme risks in this moment who are saying we will refuse to be simultaneously essential and disposable. And we are seeing these walkouts by Amazon workers and nurses, you know, demonstrating outside of hospitals. And so what is the duty? You know, I was uh, I did, did an event recently with Eric Ward from the Southern Poverty Law Center, and he said the only question that matters now is are liberals going to stand with workers or with capital? I, you know, I don't know exactly where we are going through the portal, but I do firmly believe that it begins, if we don't want it to end up in that dystopia that we've seen in every, you know, sci-fi, bad sci-fi movie, that it begins with those of us who have the luxury of being offered this actually dystopian, touchless life to, first of all, reject it, say we hate it, that the, that, that the Silicon Valley utopia is actually a dystopia, and to take real risks to stand with the people who are making our lives possible, in con whether concretely you know, boycotting the employers that are treating them as sacrificable, and also 
fighting for the policies that are the difference between life and death, whether that means canceling rent, erasing medical debt, fighting for universal health care. And, uh, and all of this is building towards, you know, the vision of a, of a true global Green New Deal. I am going to throw the vision question back a little bit, but ask you both about how we can build power. Is this the moment to be able to do it? There's one thing that I grapple with all the time, you know, which is that it's the same thing I was saying, you know, but what is it that arouses passions and which brings people on the streets, which makes people really stand up and fight? And I've seen that in India and everywhere in the world, the left saw it in both the world wars, how suddenly uh, international solidarity just dissolves into nationalism the minute there's a war. So if it's an issue of any kind of sectarian, ethnic, or religious issue, you have these fiery passions. Let's say Trump and Modi, they both speak directly to that. When Trump is insulting that Chinese-American journalist, our instinct is immediately to rally behind her. But you, you see him actually thinking, I've got another half a million people on my side because I did this of nationalist, right-wing viciousness. So Modi does the same. It really makes me think, like when he announced demonetization and he just overnight, 80% of the currency was no longer legal tender. It was nothing compared to what this coronavirus, but still people really suffered, but he managed to turn that suffering into some kind of pleasure. So how is it that these, these people manage to appeal to the very people who they are destroying for support? How is it possible in this moment of the pandemic when nothing could be more important than universal health care in the US, that Bernie Sanders is out of the race? And, and the person who's got the Democratic nomination seems to be a non-person. Why is it happening? Perhaps there's something we need to understand yeah. about mass psychology. To think that people who are hungry and without jobs and without work will rise up in revolution. So how does it happen? How does that critical moment happen? Because here people have been hungry and brutalized for so long but so beautifully divided up and fitted against each other. Do we need the vision to build power? And what does this moment allow us to do? I do believe we need a vision of where we're going to light the path, I don't think. But I, but I also think we, we start with where the most critical struggles are, whether it's to get people out of prison where COVID is running rampant or camps on the borders. That vision has to be rooted in those real struggles. One of the openings of this moment, you know, it has us thinking about what is essential. We don't usually have that discussion and you can see it fading into the background quickly as we normalize this particular manifestation of mass death. But this isn't the first time that we have found ways to normalize mass death. I mean, in Europe where 
thousands of people drowning in the Mediterranean was normalized in the past decade and able to coexist with pleasant summer vacation. All of us who have been part of the battles in the climate justice movement around, you know, are we going to set the warming target at 1.5 or 2 degrees? That was always a debate about whether or not millions upon millions of people were going to lose their homelands, were going to be allowed to disappear, or whether that was going to be sacrificed in the name of keeping the economy growing. And so that logic is now, you know, at the very center of the largest economy on the planet. So the vision, I think, comes from those battles, the people who are taking the risks, the question about whether or not we're going to be standing on the side of the sort of ease that is being promised with this bubble world of endless streaming and endless delivery and touchlessness, or whether or not we're going to stand with those people who are being sacrificed based on the logic that there are armies of other workers to replace them. I mean, this is the calculation of a guy like Jeff Bezos, who's made $30 billion in this pandemic and is eliminating the hazard pay for his workers, even as The outbreaks in his warehouses continue unabated. He is just looking at the unemployment rates and going, they can quit. I'll replace them. There's no shortage of people to replace them. And that is why, you know, I come back to this challenge of, you know, what about what are those of us who are who are getting the delivery packages going to do? Of course, we need a vision of the world we're working for. But I think that it needs to build on the experience that we're in right now. What is essential? What do we miss? What are we discovering is really essential in this moment? I think we miss each other. I think we appreciate the natural world in this moment. So many people are taking solace from the fact that birdsong has has returned. And we appreciate the labor of the people who are allowing us to stay alive and keeping ourselves safe. So the vision of the world that we want has to build on these revelations, it has to build on the on the fact that we can't treat people as if they're disposable, that we value, that we, we need alignment between that essential labor and the way we value it monetarily. And we also need, I think, mass decommodification. I mean, one of the things that scares me the most about this vision that Silicon Valley is is selling to us and is so being so rapidly normalized as we move everything online is that all of it, we are the mind site, you know, our data is the mind site. It doesn't replace the real mind sites, but it is another mind site. Every, every, all of our relationships are as we move online, as, as, as our social relations move to Zoom calls um, and social media platforms, and our kids are learning online and medicine is moved online, all of it is extractable. So I think we need a radical movement of decommodification which isn't to say that we don't use technology, but we have to refuse the idea that it is the new site of endless extraction and commodification where our most intimate relationships are repackaged and sold as data. So, I mean, these are just a few ideas. Obviously, none of us have the answers. And I think the whole idea behind this process that we're kind of kicking off here and that has been building over a year is that it needs to be a weaving of the collective vision, because even though we have these critiques of everywhere we've gone wrong and all of our and kicking ourselves and lost opportunities and shut doors, the fact is we do have, we've been doing some work over these centuries and decades and months and years. And there are groups like Via Campesina, for instance, that have woven an international network 
of small farmers and, and who have a vision for what food security and sovereignty and land redistribution should look like in this moment. We aren't starting from scratch. And you can look you know, at the decarceration movement or the feminist movement and see so many of these ideas out there. So I think as frustrated and fearful as we are and as much as we feel those lost opportunities and moments, um, we can't lose sight of all of this work. And it's the disaster capitalists that crave the blank slate, right? This moment has created a blank sheet, a blank slate for us to you know, build our fantasy world. I think ours should be the opposite. There are no blank sheets. There are no blank pages. We need to be weaving together all of this collective vision that has been percolating and, and that has been salvaged and saved into something that we can really be inspired by and that can be a beacon for us. That was Naomi Klein and Arundhati Roy on Surviving the Future. They spoke on May 19, 2020. The moderator was Asad Rahman. Both Naomi Klein and Arundhati Roy are world-renowned writers and peace and social justice activists. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and progressive and in our 34th year. We are supported solely by individuals just like you. Our nonprofit organization is Rise Up. Special thanks to Haymarket Books. Joe Rich is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. <laughs>